welcome again to our Generation Podcast. It's great to have your company. But most of all, I am enjoying the company of my boss today. My boss has come downstairs and I am well, very uh, pleased to welcome Bob Aykroyd. Bob is the chair of the Mission Board. Bob, this is Thanksgiving. It's great to see you on a special day. Happy Thanksgiving, David, and happy Thanksgiving to all your listeners. Excellent. Now, um, you are chair of Mission Board, and I remember when we appointed you, we didn't have to spend a long time convincing you. Uh, Is mission important to you? Well, mission is critical. Mission is critical to all that we are and all that we do as Christians, as a church, and as a denomination. So define mission. What is it? Well, I mean, I don't think we need to define it. I think Jesus defines it because he tells us that the mission of the church is to go and make disciples of all the nations. We baptize them, we teach them, and we commend Jesus to all people so that they might hear and having heard respond. Right. So from your accent, folk know that you're not from Cambus Lang. You're in fact a native of New Jersey, Presumably, and I know that you weren't raised in a, 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 a traditional Christian home, um, a good home, but not, not traditionally Christian. So you must have encountered a missionary at some point in your life who told you about Jesus. Tell us your story. Yeah, my story, again, I think my story is, is very similar to many other people's story. Uh, meeting a Christian, getting to know a Christian, being invited by a Christian to come to church. This particular Christian or missionary his name was Alan Levi. Now, with a name like Levi, you mm-hmm. either think he makes blue jeans or you know mm-hmm. that he's maybe a member of a different religious community. Sure. And, and his family was Jewish many generations ago, but they they came to uh, faith. Uh, well, they became Christians, but they became. He, Alan would say that his family was not were nominal Christians. And I remember when I met Alan, now it's back 1990, we ended up sharing a flat on Coburn Street, which is a windy street that takes you from the high street down to Waverly Bridge. Alan and I shared this one-bedroom flat, very small attic flat. So in a small flat like that, you notice, and you mm-hmm. get to notice each other and habits and lifestyle. Anyway, it was obvious that Alan was a Christian, and things that he said were just quite unusual. He said, uh, my family always went to church, but only recently have we become Christians. He said his brother went to university, and when at university, he was converted. And then later, the whole family, his parents, himself, uh, three sisters, were were all converted. I mean, a remarkable story. Um, And then Alan, as a lawyer, he was 10 years older than me. He comes to Scotland. I come to Scotland. Uh, he studies Scottish literature, I study Scottish history, and he ends up settling at a church called Baclue Free Church. And what happened? Well, Alan eventually invited me to church, and I, I was studying history, and he said, well, come and see history, living history. <laughs> Here's a service that looks you know, largely the same since the time of the Reformation. <laughs> and I went along, and it so happened to be... Uh, the preacher was a man called Donald McLeod, not that I knew who Donald McLeod was. But my first impression of the preacher was that his prayer was longer than I've ever heard anybody <laughs> speak. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, of course, was eclipsed by his sermon. Uh-huh. And I remember the text. I mean, that's now 28 years ago. The fool says in his heart, there wow. is no God, Psalm 14, verse 1. And he expanded and sp- expounded on that subject for 40 minutes. 
Mm-hmm. And then, you know, to cut a long story short, you are now eventually a minister. How on earth did that happen? Your trajectory was one way. I think you you had aspirations to be an accountant and then you studied history as an academic discipline and, and here you are, a, a minister. What happened? I think in many ways, you know, sometimes the influence of your parents is a bit subliminal. My mother was an educator. She was a teacher. My sister is now a teacher. I now teach So I kind of thought that somehow teaching was going to be part of my life. I taught English for a couple of years in Japan, but two years teaching English was was quite enough. Came here to study history. Accountancy was never a passion, but accountancy pays bills. Mm -hmm. So it's a useful profession from that regard. (laughs) So I came with a view to teach, uh, but my subject I thought would be history, American history, maybe Scottish, British history. Uh, God worked in my life, changed my life, changed my heart, uh, changed my focus, but in many ways kept that same desire to teach. But my subject now, instead of the history of the United States, was now going to be the message of the Bible, the person and work of Jesus, uh, the Gospels, the letters of Paul, the Old and the New Testament. So very soon after becoming a Christian, I was involved in work in and around Edinburgh, volunteering. I spoke at a free breakfast service that was run by Carubber's uh, Church down on the high street. And um, I was uh, encouraged um, by Kenny McDonald, who's a legend in the free church circles. Kenny, uh, who was often in Edinburgh, he encouraged me to consider becoming a, a minister, having become a Christian now, I thought this was him recognizing qualities and characteristics in me, but actually I realized <laughs> later that any man who had come to faith, he would encourage to become With a minister. With a heartbeat, usually. Yeah, a yeah, heartbeat. a pulse and you know, a warm body. Um, anyway, so I took him up on it, and I presented myself to my Kirk session, and then to my presbytery, and then to the, I think it was called Tom there, That's then right. the training of the ministry committee, and uh, for some reason they let me through. Unbelievable. Now, working with you over the last few years, I've noticed that you enjoy the company of historical figures. I'm not saying you don't enjoy the company of those of us who are living, but, um, you know, you seem to live a little bit. Uh, no, you, you don't live in the past. That's unfair, but you respect past figures. And I know that one of the figures who you admire is D.L. Moody. Tell us a little bit about the strengths and weaknesses of Moody, and how does he intrigue you? Well, D.L. Moody was a big man, physically big man. D.L. Moody was a big presence in the 19th century. And if you just want to kind of equate him with certain other figures, he was a contemporary of Charles Haddon Spurgeon, a contemporary of Hudson Taylor. Mm -hmm. Um, Taylor and Spurgeon were obviously from the United Kingdom. Moody was from the United States. He was born in Deerfield, Massachusetts, um, or East Eastfield, Massachusetts. I'm sorry. He uh, was uh, born in 1837. He became a Christian at the age of 17. He was not well educated, but Moody was a passionate man. Uh, at one point, his passion was selling shoes, and he mm-hmm. wanted to be the best shoe salesman ever. He wanted to go to Chicago, make his fortune, make $100,000, which was a fortune back then. Uh, His Sunday school teacher called in one day at his shoe shop and spoke to him about the gospel. Edward Kimball, 
not well known compared mm-hmm. to Moody, but Kimball commanded the gospel. He was concerned that no member of his Sunday school class, which was young adults, it didn't seem as if any member of that class was a converted Christian. And Kimball felt a burden, and he quickly made a, a visit to Moody in the back of a shoe shop and spoke to Moody. Moody responded, became a Christian. And later, Moody applied for membership of the Mount Vernon uh, Church and was rejected. And Kimball reflected on Moody's early life and said, never had we a candidate for membership at the Mount Vernon Church that we considered less likely to come to a full understanding of the Christian faith, let alone perform any valuable service in the gospel. Uh, And yet here, D.L. Moody, by the end of his career, he preached the gospel to over 100 million people in person. It's estimated that he led uh, 70,000 people personally to faith in Jesus, and that, again, it's hard to estimate, but at least a million people responded to the gospel offer through these, what we would say would be uh, large-scale evangelistic meetings. Yeah. And were there any special characteristics of Moody that you seem to regard as unusual? Well, he had an unusual capacity for learning. He was not well-educated, but he was eager to learn. Yeah. And oftentimes he would be corrected in his theology because his theology was limited by his education, but he was always keen to learn from those who took the time to correct him. And he was eager to grow in his knowledge and grow in his understanding. He was reluctant to preach. He always felt that others were able to preach much better than he. He felt that he could gather a crowd, but he would mm-hmm. rather have somebody else preach to the crowd. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it quickly became apparent that his preaching gifts were obvious. But I would say because his passion for people was obvious. He loved people. It was said of Moody when he preached, uh, listeners who had maybe no knowledge or interest in the gospel, they would say, this man spoke to me as if my soul mattered. Mm -hmm. And one book on the life of Moody was entitled, Love Them In, The Theology, The Life and Theology of D.L. Moody. Big man, big heart, passion. Um, The story was told in a London drawing room that various clergymen from the Church of England said, Mr. Moody, we don't understand how you do it. You're not well educated. You're not trained uh, as a as a. He was not a minister, uh, but it seems as if God is using you. And he took them to the to the room in this large drawing room that looked off onto a park. And he said, "What do you see?" And one of the men said, "Well, I see a couple walking hand in hand. I see a woman pushing a pram. I see men and women walking past on the on, on the on the pavement." Then one of them said, "Well, Mr. Moody, what do you see?" And as a tear trickled down his cheek, he said, I see men and women walking to a lost eternity. Mm -hmm. So his understanding of destiny, the eternal destiny of people, shaped his life. He lived for 62 years. He literally burned himself out in the gospel by the end of his life. His heart literally gave out. He died just a few days before the 20th century commenced. And I would just say that I think history can motivate us. History Mm -hmm. can enthuse us. Because if we're honest, sometimes the work of the gospel, whether it's preaching, whether it's teaching, whether it's chairing the mission board, can be disheartening and demotivating. So if you find somebody in the present or in the past who motivates you, 
hold on to that person. Yeah, one more moody story. You recall the story of him, I think he had a target of speaking to at least one person each day about Jesus, about their soul. Isn't there a story about that? Oh, I mean, there's there's many a story that he would get up late at night from bed, realizing that he hadn't spoken to anyone, recognizing the lateness of the hour. He thought this will be absolutely impossible to find anyone. He goes out of his front door. Uh, he finds somebody standing under under a street lamp. And uh, he says to this man, are you a Christian? And the man says, no, I'm not, and it's none of your business. Yeah. And Moody says, well, actually, it is my business. And the man said, well, then you must be Moody. <laughs> Such was his reputation in Chicago especially. But there was another situation late at night where Moody spoke to this man and uh, <clears throat> exhorted him about his soul and about the Lord Jesus. And the man responded very abruptly and very negatively. Um. And then maybe a couple weeks later, very late at night, the front door of the Moody house was shaken so much that Moody thought the door was going to be knocked off its hinges. And it was this man. And this man says, do you remember me? Two weeks ago, you spoke to me about Jesus Christ, and you asked me if I was saved. I said, no. I've had no sleep since then. I need to speak to you about this Jesus. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, this is an extraordinary man, maybe an extraordinary time, But what he has is a big vision of a big God. And whatever our vision of God is, it's never big enough. Mm -hmm. Whatever our requests of God are never large enough because God is always bigger. His plan is always greater. And his capacity far exceeds our asking and even our imagining. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. Now, I know that you enjoy to dine and I've enjoyed your company on many occasions. And you enjoy a lunch with good company and you enjoy hearing people of different perspectives. If you were to invite three people from the whole of history, dead or alive, presumably they're alive when when they're lunching, um, who of these three people, who who would it be? Now, they have not obviously got to be the Lord himself, whom we would love, or the Apostle Paul, or any biblical figures. What three people, dead or alive, would you invite for lunch? Well, we often speak of this book by Malcolm Gladwell called Blink, that you should really go with whatever comes to your mind. Abraham Lincoln, uh, 16th president of the United States. If there are any listeners from the southern states of the United (laughs) States, a man of incredible character, of integrity, of resoluteness, um, fascinated by Abraham Lincoln. I would want him at the table. I think um, when I think of Christian figures, we've mentioned Moody already. I would say C.H. Spurgeon, again, the remarkable intellect and the sympathy as well as that capacity to communicate and to articulate the gospel with power, with passion, with with logic, with reason, I'd want him. Uh, I'd want C. H. Spurgeon at the table. Um, he and Lincoln's life overlapped; they never met, but they at least overlapped for a period of time. Uh, who else would I ask? I would have to say somebody now from from the twentieth century. Somebody again who's just fascinating is I would say Winston Churchill, yep. <laughs> uh, because big figure. You know, these men all operated at key times and made key contributions, and their memory is a lasting memory. 
most people from the annals of history are forgotten, sometimes rightly so, but other times surprisingly <laughs> so. I think those that are remembered are remembered for a reason. So these well, three men I'd I like mean, to have lunch would with. These, would these men understand each other's worlds? For, what I'm getting at there is that you have Lincoln. I don't know what Lincoln's theology was. Um, was, he, was he a deist? Was he, was he a Christian? I'm, I'm not too sure. But um, would he understand the language of the gospel, the language of scripture, and Churchill, of course, would, would he know the terminology? And would Spurgeon be able to talk about philosophy and economics and uh, politics to Lincoln and Churchill? Well, I guess each of these men in their own sphere were multifaceted, and their knowledge was multi-strand. You know, yeah. Churchill's history of the American of the English language. Uh, Lincoln was a was an orator. He was a lawyer. He was a raconteur. He was an avid reader. C. Uh, H. Spurgeon again had an encyclopedic memory, and you know, as if he had a library in his mind. But I think these these, these characters would be able to engage with each other. Um, if you read Lincoln's second inaugural uh, inaugural address, which is slightly longer than the Gettysburg address, both of them are uh, carved in granite in the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C. What seems clear by the second inaugural, which was just a few days before his assassination, was that Lincoln's theology had become much more sharpened and much more focused, mm -hmm. that the carnage of four years of civil war and the personal tragedies of losing two children, I think had opened his eyes to the things of eternity and to the things of Christ, so that when he spoke of religion and he spoke of the Christian religion, he didn't speak abstractly. I also recognize within Churchill a character who comes at a time of crisis and speaks clearly and boldly and brings confidence because there would be no shortage of pessimism no shortage of doom uh, you know dooms teller you know that 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 and today there, there there's, there's no shortage of negative voices i don't think we need negative <laughs> voices i think we need positive voices and i think we need progressive thinking that whatever the situation that we find ourselves in we are not presupposing that things will go from worse to worse again yeah yeah if we're gospel people things are going to get better uh, amen amen one of the things that interests me and I've observed with you, Bob, is that you have a great range. Uh, you can, in terms of intellectual scale, social ease, maybe it's because you are an American, you're more egalitarian than us as, as Brits. Um, you seem to find it just as easy to talk to a PhD or a lord as it is to talk to a homeless guy or girl on the street. How important is that range for a pastor? And this is a double question. Does a traditional theological education equip us for that range? Well, again, I think I go back to the source um, and the ultimate standard, which is the Lord Jesus himself. Jesus was a people person. He enjoyed the company of all different kinds of people in the settings, all different kinds of settings. Uh, he was a friend of tax collectors and sinners, and he ate with them. So Jesus had the ability of communicating with Nicodemus. He had the ability to communicate with the woman at the well. He had the ability to communicate with the governor Pilate 
and the ability to communicate with Matthew the publican. So if we are in the business, I don't like to use the word business, but if we are following in the footsteps of our Lord, people must be our priority. All people. There's 7.6 billion people on this planet currently. Many of them have never heard the name of Jesus. As a rule, if you never hear the name of Jesus, it's very difficult to respond to Jesus. Now, God can do his work in his way, but he tends to use ordinary means as opposed to extraordinary means. But even he uses those ordinary means in an extraordinary way. So I think if we are saying that we follow in his footsteps, in Jesus' footsteps, people are our priority, now we need to tell them something. Mm -hmm. And that's where I think theological education equips us to tell people something about Jesus, to tell people something about his word, his work, his past, his present, his future. But... If you have a situation where you have someone who's a great people person but has nothing to say, or somebody who has plenty to say but is not good with people, that's not a balanced education, and that's not a person that's likely to be used in either situation. So we need both. We need something to say, and we need the ability to connect the something with someone. So whether it's the person you meet on the street, the person that's serving you at lunch, the person you're sitting next to on the bus— the person that you live with, the neighbors that are across the landing, uh, the folks that you meet every week. There is no shortage of people in each of our lives. The question is, are we confident, not in ourselves, but in Jesus? Are we confident that his word, the gospel, is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe? Mm -hmm. Because what unites Hudson Taylor, C.H. Spurgeon, D.L. Moody as distinct personalities and as distinct ventures as each one of them pursued, they were confident in the gospel and they were confident in Jesus' power to save. Now, our confidence in Jesus never exceeds his capacity. Yeah. But if our confidence isn't there, we're not going to speak, we're not going to share, we're not going to tell. And we're not going to invite people into this living relationship with our living, risen Lord Jesus. Okay, we, we bounce, a bit, bounce about a bit in these podcasts. One of the things that we like to talk about is preaching. Now, I've, I've heard you preaching over the last 28 years, and I have seen, you know, a real, you were always a decent preacher. You're now an excellent preacher, and on a good day with the wind behind you, even outstanding. <laughs> How have you developed your preaching? First of all, tell us what are the elements of preaching, mm. and how have you personally developed and are developing as a preacher? Well, I hope that over these years, I've been a Christian now for 26, almost 27 years, that my knowledge of the scriptures has grown. The more you know, the more you can tell. Also, what I hope the field that I now engage in teaching, systematic theology, talks about how doctrine coheres and sticks together. And I hope that my understanding of Christian doctrine now sticks together better, which hopefully then means that a sermon sticks together. Mm -hmm. Because a sermon is not just a series of propositional statements, it's not just a list of facts or figures or data, but a sermon should stick together. It should have a beginning, it should have a middle, it should have an end. There should be a logic, there should be a structure. We should inform, we should enthuse, we should motivate, we should identify error, we should commend truth. And I think 
a good sermon, like any good form of communication, needs to reach the audience that's there, not the audience that isn't there. Though I do think that there's value to what Tim Keller says about preaching to those people you would like to be there, because very soon they will be there. Preaching over people's heads is never a good idea. <laughs> Condemning sins that aren't present doesn't make sense. Uh, if the gospel is good news, preaching must sound a good note, that we must sound that note of optimism, that note of hope. Uh, Jesus did not come into this world to condemn the world, so therefore we are not meant to do that either. He came into the world to save the world. And what we are to be, as John the Baptist was, was a signpost or a herald. So good, 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 a good sermon connects the Bible with people. The message of the Bible, which is a simple and straightforward message, it's complex because our God is complex, but we want to speak the plain truths to plain people and in all things to commend the Lord Jesus. There are many, you could teach Isaac and Rebecca. That's an interesting story in the Old Testament. But unless in preaching about Isaac and Rebecca and marriage and how they came together, unless you can commend Jesus and show how Jesus and Isaac and Jesus and Rebecca mm -hmm. connect, I wonder how valuable such a sermon is mm -hmm. simply as a lesson in Bronze Age marital customs. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and if it's just mere moralism, you may be as well just thinking Aesop's fables mm. or something like that. Now, we're we're talking here, it's Thanksgiving Day, 2019, we're on the cusp, 1920. Um, Free Church of Scotland, 106 congregations, Scotland, 6 million people. There's a lot of folk out there who have not heard about Jesus. Uh, we hear a siren in the background which says that there's an emergency somewhere there is a gospel emergency. Um, I'm talking here about recruiting people for gospel ministry and gospel work, Bob. And I know this is something that you are prayerfully concerned about. So there, there will be folk listening to this podcast who are thinking, will I or will I not offer myself to the Most High for gospel ministry? What would you say to them? <sighs> Well, let me say this. Uh, Jesus doesn't need you. Jesus doesn't need me. Jesus doesn't need anyone. He will accomplish his plan and purpose with us, without us, for us, or against us. But the great message of the Bible is that Jesus will use us. He will use ordinary people with ordinary gifts to accomplish his extraordinary purpose. But if you don't hear the call, and if you don't recognize the crisis, response is impossible. I would suggest on Saturday the 6th of December, 1941, most people in the United States were going about their business. Football games would have been played. Weekend activities would have been enjoyed. Strange, on the morning of the 8th of December, 1941, there were queues at every enlistment office for the Army, for the Navy, for the Air Force, for the Marines. There weren't queues on Friday the 5th of December, but there were queues on Monday the 8th of December. What made the difference? Well, the Japanese Empire attacked Pearl Harbor, and from that point forward, the United States was at war. The President of the United States informed Detroit that Detroit from that moment would no longer make passenger automobiles. 
that the big three auto manufacturers would now manufacture airplanes. And by January 1942, airplanes were being manufactured in Detroit. Why? There was a war on, and it required the full effort of the entire country to wage that war. The soldiers on the field, in the air, on the sea, but it also meant that everyone at home was involved in the war effort as well. If we are prosecuting a war, now we know the war has been won. We know the Lord Jesus is victorious, and yet the work is still to be done because so many people haven't heard there is a time limit. We have a time limit called life. You and I, David, are not going to be here in 40 years' time. Many people will not be here when the bells sound at the end of 2019, let alone next year. So there's a time limit, and also Jesus says he's coming back. So unless we know there's an urgency, unless we know there's a crisis, and unless we hear the call, your audience will not respond. But I would suggest if you hear the voice of Jesus speaking through Scripture, if you look out and your heart is moved for people, and if you're willing to serve, I would suggest that we can find a place for you to serve. Yeah. I mean, I'm thinking May 20th, 1940, Operation Dynamo was launched. The brainchild of a guy called Lord John Gorp. And, of course, the Nazis were advancing over mainland Europe. The British forces had to be rescued. There was approximately 400,000 men had to be rescued. On the first day, only 7,669 were rescued. So that wasn't enough. So they employed a, a flotilla of over 400 vessels to save the people. An emergency was declared and everything was put at the disposal of the army to get people home. I'd love to see that spirit today. Military operation. Amen. Yeah. So, Bob, uh, as you look around the Scottish situation, um, what encourages you and what discourages you? I know that as a man of optimism, you will be emphasizing the encouragement, but you're also a man of realism. So what's, what's your observations? What encourages me is that you see a growing level of partnership, vital partnerships, real partnerships within Scotland and between Scotland and other partners outside of the country. So we have what we call the UK partnership, and there's a growing number of churches in the United States that are passionately interested in church planting in the United Kingdom. That could be through the IPC Church down in England. It could be with the FIEC. It could be with the EPCEW Church in England and Wales, or it could be with us, the Free Church of Scotland. That's exciting Mm -hmm. to see men and women with a passion for church planting who are eager to support that work here. I also think there's a growing partnership among churches and among church leaders here in Edinburgh, for example. I would say there's a, a... There's a good spirit of cooperation among key leaders. Not that that was absent 10 years ago, 20 years ago, but it's much more visible and tangible today so that you have church planters training together who represent different denominations and will serve in different spheres, but they're learning together, they're praying together, they're encouraging one another. That's exciting, and that's heartening. Um, I guess what, what... What concerns me is that of all the folks that are coming for training, the majority of people that I meet 
feel they have a calling to teach the Lord's people. Yeah. That's a good thing. The Lord's people need teaching. But you would suggest at a time in which we approach almost 6 million Scottish people and the percentages are two, three, four, let's be, let's be optimistic and say 5% of the population goes to church on a given Sunday. That's high, but let's say 5%. That means 95% are not engaging with our message. Therefore, if we were an organization, we would say we need a marketing department. Mm. We need people that will go out there and tell people about what it is that we have for them, why they need this message, why they need this Jesus. So it seems to me that there is a dearth of evangelists. There is a dearth of men and women who feel a calling to tell people about Jesus. Oh, the challenges are many. But I find in the Bible that Jesus calls us to go. He says, I'll go with you. And when he goes with us, he brings all authority on heaven and on earth. If we don't go, I think the logic of Matthew 28 is he won't go either. Mm. And if we don't speak and if we don't bring the gospel to the nations, then we will be doing things in our own effort. And all authority in heaven and on earth compared to our authority, our wisdom, our strength, it's a poor, it's a poor substitute. So when we do God's work, God's way, we will never lack God's supply but we should also never lack the supply of workers for his harvest field. It's his harvest field. It's his harvest. It's his gospel. And I think what we need more of is to be reminded as Christians what the gospel is, what the gospel means, what the gospel implies, and what the lack of the gospel implies. Think of D.L. Moody at that window. Are we shedding tears? Or are we effectively fatalistically saying, this is the way it is, this is the way it has been, this is the way it always will be? That was not the spirit on December the 8th, 1941. That was not the spirit of D.L. Moody, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, Hudson Taylor. These key figures at key times looked and saw a harvest field in China, in London, throughout the world. They went, they spoke. They preached, they proclaimed, God strangely tends to use people who have a big vision of the gospel, a big heart for people, and a confidence in God's word, and just watch the results. Well, Bob, thank you so much. Uh, These words are really inspirational and instructional, motivational, but most of all, they're, they're biblical. And we do thank you for giving your time today just to talk to us. We wish you every blessing as you continue to cheer the mission board as we're involved in doing mission through the Generation Platform and through many other things, through global mission, church planting, development, and equipping. I'm just looking beside my desk here. I've got a list of, of the church plants, the ones we're engaged in just now, Haddington, Cornerstone, Edinburgh, Esk Valley, Govan, Glasgow, Charleston, Dundee, Christ Church, Glasgow, Mark and Inverness, Grace Leith. We'd love to see church planters in Helensborough. We'd love to see something happening in Cowinning. We'd love to see something happening in Chapel Hill and Airdrie. They're all things that are possibilities. We've got a dream list as well. Winchborough and West Lothian, you know, we could do something there. South Edinburgh has been spoken about. And so many other places all over Scotland, the harvest is plentiful. Bob, thank you so much. I hope you have a great day. 
and enjoy your Thanksgiving. Are you having a Thanksgiving meal with some of your people tonight? Some of the best people in the world. Thanksgiving dinner tonight, a full table with food. Even more important, a full table with friends. Excellent. Have a great night. Happy Happy Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. Thank you.